0: Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours we will talk about Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers 1. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now let me hand it over to our colleague Dr. Herbert Gerlach from Germany to get this session going. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to, to Session 9, Pathogen Detection and Sepsis Markers. Uh, uh, my name is Helwig Gerlach. I'm here from Germany. I'm the current chair of the German Sepsis Society, and I'm glad to welcome uh, five uh, speakers who are all well-known on the field of sepsis. And um, the uh, issue what we are talking about is, uh, is new markers and the ability of new markers to guide us either to detect sepsis or to guide our therapy. And our first speaker is Professor Tom van der Pol from the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam. Um, he is the head of the Center of Experimental and Molecular Medicine. And f- uh, f- uh, furthermore, he is the current chair of the International Sepsis Forum. Tom, we are glad to hear you. And you will present us the first talk on molecular biomarkers to guide sepsis therapy. Please, Tom.
1: Okay, thank you very much, um, uh, Harry, for this uh, kind uh, introduction. My talk is about biomarkers, molecular biomarkers uh, for sepsis, and um, the biomarkers um, reflect the host response. And this shows the host response to sepsis, which is very complicated. Um, On the upper part, you see red. In red, the pro-inflammatory response to sepsis, which consists, amongst others, of leukocyte activation, complement activation, and coaculation activation and in the lower part, in blue, are anti-inflammatory and immune-suppressive responses. People have tried to uh, modulate the host response to the benefit of patients, and in particular, they have tried to modify pro-inflammatory response to sepsis and have been rather unsuccessful um, in doing so. So multiple trials have been tested, as is shown here, and all of these trials have failed. So something has gone wrong in all of these trials. And um, many people think now of better approaches um, to modify or or to select the patients in which the host response can be modified. And that is where biomarkers come in. And uh, this talk is about, in particular, molecular biomarkers and in particular about um, mRNA and other RNA molecules that might provide insight into the host response to sepsis. We're looking about molecular biomarkers that can discriminate between infection and non-infection because sepsis obviously is defined as an infection that results in organ dysfunction. So the first question you might ask is whether um, biomarkers can assist in discriminating between infection and non-infection. And this is a first study uh, published in Science Translational Medicine that revealed a molecular biomarker comprising of 11 genes that can discriminate between infectious and sterile uh, critical illness. Uh, These authors first um, obtained five data sets publicly available and compared then uh, um, biomarkers in sterile and infectious disease and came up with this 11 gene biomarker, which was then uh, subsequently validated in 15 independent cohorts with a nice discriminative capacity with an area under the curve of 0.87. There's other examples around, and this is one published in Plus Medicine by a company uh, called Immune Express. They published their septicide molecular biomarker, um, which in, in, in this uh, diagram that you see here is um, it was discovered in a relatively small discovery cohort of 74 sepsis patients and 31 controls, um, and then they dissected a four gene biomarker, um, which consisted of two genes that were upregulated in sepsis, which is plac 8 and LAMP1, and two genes genes that are downregulated in sepsis, which is PLA2G7 and CEA camp 4 and they composed the score of that, and with with a nice discriminative capacity. So this is shown. Here, uh, with an area under the curve that approaches one, actually, for the discrimination of sepsis in red bullets, uh, cases, and in dark blue bullets are the controls. Um, So sepsis and controls can be nicely discriminated by this biomarker. And this was actually confirmed uh, in an independent uh, groups of patients. And in total, three independent cohorts confirmed the discriminative capacity of this septicide biomarker. Our own group um, did another approach, which is even more difficult for discrimination. We looked at patients that were admitted to the intensive care unit that suspected community-acquired pneumonia, and then a um, group of investigators, in retrospect, was classified as having really community-acquired pneumonia or the diagnosis was discarded based on culture results and subsequent uh, information that became available in the days um, after admission. And then we compared A biomarker in patients with real community-acquired pneumonia versus patients that were suspected of having community-acquired pneumonia, and this is the table showing that these patients are similar in terms of outcome and severity of illness. So shock was present in approximately one-third of patients in both groups, and also um, the majority of patients was on mechanical ventilation, and also mortality did not differ amongst groups. We did whole genome wide uh, mRNA expression profiling in those patients, comparing patients with CAP and with patients that uh, were admitted suspected of having CAP, but uh, in that retrospect were classified as having no CAP. And, and you see here the, the, the plots um, with a um, unique gene expression profile um, in, in CAP that comprised uh, 3,800 genes, over 3,800 genes. And these potentially could be used as biomarker for the discrimination between the CAP patients and the no CAP ICU controls. And actually, we dissected a 78 gene signature for the discrimination between CAP and no CAP upon ICU admission, um, with a very nice um, uh, discrimination, um, as is shown in a heat map. Um, we used then this 78 gene signature. Um, and considered all ratios of genes and ranked them by area under the curve and wilkinson test to come up with the best gene ratio that can discriminate between cap and no cap in this clinically challenging situation and then uh, we revealed the same 3 eight ratio so these are two genes and the ratio between the expression of genes are highly uh, instructive for discrimination of cap and no cap in this challenging population that was admitted to the ICU and treated by the treating physicians for CAP, whereas some of these patients, in retrospect, did not turn out to have CAP. So this biomarker was uh, validated in uh, independent cohorts and also compared with more or less established uh, biomarkers, such as procalcitonin and interleukin-8 and interleukin-6, so the fame 8 ratio outperformed established protein biomarkers for the discrimination between CAP and no CAP upon ICU admission. So apparently I showed you a couple of papers now that um, uh, with molecular biomarkers, uh, in particular RNA biomarkers, that can assist in discriminating patients with sepsis um, and those patients with, with non-infectious critical illness. And the, the next question I would like to address is, where the molecular biomarkers can also assist in the discrimination or in classifying patients uh, with sepsis into um, more meaningful subgroups, knowing that sepsis is such a heterogeneous syndrome. So this is what um, a group from uh, the United Kingdom did under the leadership of Julian Knight. Uh, They looked at patients admitted to the intensive care with severe community-acquired pneumonia, and then they did whole genome-wide expression mRNA profiling, and they did an unsupervised hierarchical cluster analysis of the top ten most variable probes. And they came up with two different subgroups depicted in blue and red here that were clearly uh, could be discriminated with this unsupervised hierarchical clustering methods. And um, you might appreciate from this vanilla diagram that um, there was huge differential gene expression between um, the two subgroups of patients, which were called uh, sepsis response syndrome 1 and sepsis response syndrome 2. And if we compare, if we especially look at the sepsis um, response syndrome syndrome 1 group, this was in particular enriched for endotoxin tolerance genes. So the authors concluded that this SRS1 group was in particular associated with immunosuppressive phenotype. And this has received a lot of attention in recent uh, sepsis literature in terms of that um, the immune suppression of sepsis is considered to be an important denominator of late sepsis mortality. And these are actually the kaplan meyer curves in the discovery cohort, showing that the SRS1 subgroup is associated with an enhanced lethality um, when compared to the SRS2 subgroup. And this is also, this was also validated in an independent cohort. Showing that the, the, the certification of, um, CAP patients, sepsis patients, uh, pneumonia derived sepsis patients can be done with molecular subtyping and this can provide insight into pathophysiological uh, discrimination between groups and also providing insight about the prognosis of these patients. So how can we use this information in clinical practice in the future? Well, oh, this is a, a scheme um, that I'd like to show in, 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 my, in the end of, of several biomarker talks that I've given in the, in the recent past. So what we have here is a pathway X that is um, disturbed in a critically ill patient population with sepsis. And now we have a rapid test, a molecular test, uh, that measures um, activity of this pathway X. And a particular test that uses molecular tools are attractive to, for this, and I'll I'll show you, I'll tell you why in a in a few seconds. So then we have an intervention that's specifically targeting pathway X. And if we look at this scenario, it's quite uh, possible that in the future we don't enroll patients anymore based on clinical criteria, but based on expression of the target gene um, and that should be altered, um, because otherwise the specific intervention targeting this pathway uh, does not make any sense to administer that. And the RNA biomarkers are in particular attractive in this field because they can be, up, they can be incorporated in fully automated bedside PCR tests. are already there. The technology is there, so we are only there to fill the, these techno- technologically challenging apparatus um, with, with the knowledge that we obtain from recent research. So this is my final slide. What I've hoped to tell you is that molecular biomarkers can assist in the diagnosis of infection, um, so in stratifying patients um, with with an infection versus those without an infection uh, of critical and but the critical illness of a non-infectious disease, and also molecular biomarkers can stratify patients in subgroups with distinct host response features. And the big challenge that lies ahead of us is to translate this increased knowledge into trial design using biomarkers for inclusion of patients rather than clinical criteria, and also then in subsequent implementation in clinical practice that might guide uh, our therapy um, in the years ahead. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Tom, for this uh, exciting talk and the view into the future. And um, I currently do not have any open questions, so I will first... uh, come up with my own question, which is always, I guess, a a challenge if you look in these molecular mechanisms into pathways, and uh, the question always arises, um, are we far enough to fool Mother Nature? Um, Because many of these pathways are not only the pathway of the disease, but also of the host response. What is your view into, uh, um, into this exciting, I just remind on the anti-CD14 trials, which showed us that it's perfect in blocking inflammation, but it's, it's, it's terrible in terms of real infectious diseases. Are we really far yeah, enough so that we can say that, that uh, if we identify a pathway, then we, we are ready to block it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question. So this talk was in particular about biomarkers and that might help uh, to select patients for certain interventions and uh, whether these interventions then work in the selected patient population need to be proven. I I totally agree with you that evolution has given us certain adaptive uh, measures uh, during critical illness. And what we have learned in particular in critical care medicine in the recent past is that the, um, the some host responses that we have seen in the past that were considered to be detrimental might well be adaptation to a critical illness. So it's not um, logical to intervene with all of the abnormalities relative to health that we see in critically ill patients, and we have to be cautious about which pathways to target. I hope this will answer your question. Okay. Thank you very much. I have uh, one question
0: from... Uh, 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 from the audience, uh, and the question is, on which populations should these tests be used? ED patients,
1: febrile patients, only ICU admissions? And yeah, so what, what I've, uh, the, the, the examples I've showed were only in uh, intensive care unit patients, um, but you can do similar approaches in other types of uh, uh, patient populations. So last week, there were two papers in the JAMA, um, looking at febrile children, and uh, these two back-to-back papers identified molecular biomarkers that could discriminate between bacterial and viral causes of these uh, fevers in children. So, And this was not an intensive care unit population. This was just um, febrile children um, and could partly be outpatients. So I think the technology can be used in all settings, but the examples that I've showed were only applicable to intensive care units, the populations.
0: Okay. Final question, Uh, did you study uh, the correlation in your trials with uh, the uh, severity of organ dysfunction, for instance, for the SOFA score?
1: Uh, It's also a very good question. So if we want to have prognostic biomarkers um, and we want to use it in the clinic, we we probably should incorporate severity of illness scores and see if we can enhance the, the, the value of the severity of illness scores with our biomarker. Uh, biomarkers are not only um, um, providing insight or potentially could not only provide insight in prognosis, so there you need the severity of illness scores as a um, um, covariate to study the value of biomarkers, but biomarkers can also be used for discrimination between infection and no infection, and also to stratify patients into pathophysiological, more homogeneous subgroups. And in these two latter applications of biomarkers, the SOPA score might not very well help you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I
0: think it's a perfect overlap to our next issue. So um, the next speaker will be Professor Beat Müller from Switzerland. Uh, Professor Müller is Medical Director of the University Department uh, in Aarau and also Full Professor of Internal Medicine um, in Basel uh, and as we know one of his uh, yeah let's say focus is to do very pragmatic trials to see if uh, we really can use uh, p- a biomarkers to improve our handling in the daily practice and I'm happy to welcome you Bert and uh, we are looking forward to hear your talk on the role of biomarkers in the special field of antibiotic stewardship. Bert please.
2: Thank you for the kind introduction. I hope you can see uh, my slide. Um, following on Tom's talk, uh, also for guiding antibiotic stewardship, you have the dilemma of the multitude of biomarkers involved in inflammation and infection. So which one are you going to select of these? Um, of the plethora of the in observational studies always as conclusion, to be promising novel biomarkers possibly useful for antibiotic guidance. The problem with these studies is that observational studies may be very important to understand physiopathology, but for the clinician, in the end, you need to test a specific biomarker or a set of biomarkers in an interventional setting where you randomize patients to guidance of the antibiotic therapy with that biomarker or with that panel and compare it randomized to guidance without it. And then the field of the plethora narrows down basically to two biomarkers where this has been done. The first one is C-reactive protein. C-reactive protein is a hepatic protein. It's a very subtle marker of inflammation, mainly used by IL-6. It may be very useful for localized infection as it's so subtly increased. And there has been indeed tests for antibiotic stewardship in primary care. Some people argue because of the subtlety of the increase in really sick patients, which all have a systemic inflammatory response syndrome independent of whether they are infected or not, it might be unspecific. There's also a considerable delay until you get a peak level of about two to three days. Plus, because it's IL-6-mediated and steroids suppress IL-6, the increase is attenuated markedly in steroid-treated patients. Nevertheless, there have been studies, especially in primary care, where CRP guidance has been tested, for example, in this study from Holland, where four groups were distinguished in about 400 patients, basically in mild infection, respiratory tract infection, and for reason of safety, you see that The course of infections in all groups, being GPs using CRP, GP using no test at all, or GPs being trained in enhanced communication skills, the course of the disease was the same. If you compare antibiotic use, you see that even teaching physicians, giving them communication skills, you markedly reduce antibiotic use, which I think is a very important paper message of this paper. If you add on CRP, you can further reduce antibiotic use by about 10%. So there is an effect, but the effect is limited. If you go to the setting of an emergency room of the hospital, where people tend to be more sick, thus have more of seers as compared to the GP, you, however, don't find a reduction of antibiotic use as shown by this study from Gonzalez published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine about five years ago. There, the antibiotic use in the control group was 31% when patients were advised to make just a chest X-ray and then use antibiotics based on their common sense or guidelines. And if they were told to add CRP, indeed, they were prescribing 37%, thus one-third more antibiotics because they had falsely elevated CRP levels. The second marker where these studies have been done, uh, interventional studies, is procalcitonin. If you do compare these two markers in observational studies to look at sensitivity and specificity, you see a somewhat better performance of procalcitonin as compared to CRP, probably because of this less subtle increase, so less false positives as compared to CRP. A more recent meta-analysis um, well, first let me explain some things to procalcitonin. It's a ubiquitously produced marker of systemic infection, thus not only from the liver. In the meantime, since 10 years, there's been 15 randomized controlled trials investigating more than 6,000 patients in different settings, ranging from general practitioner to intensive care units to guide and lead the role for antibiotic stewardship. A more recent meta-analysis again confirmed the accuracy of an observational studies of reliability in the AUC of about 0.8. The problem with AUCs in observational studies is the lacking gold standard of observational studies because you cannot define in a febrile infection, especially of the respiratory tract, whether you actually have a bacterial source or not because microbiological analyses are insufficient to make a gold standard. Thus, we were thinking that you shouldn't use one cutoff, but rather a cutoff range. So don't say like at 0.25 procalcitonin is positive and at 0.23 it is negative. It's a range which probably is between 0.1 and 1 where infection becomes more likely if it's high or less likely when it's less high. And this should influence your guidance together with your clinical common sense. To formally test that, you need to do a randomized control trial where we defined these cutoff ranges, meaning if the PCT level is below 0.1, we strongly opposed to antibiotic stewardship. If it was above 0.5, we strongly favored antibiotic uh, prescription, and in between these values, we more or less enforced withholding or giving antibiotics. And this was compared in a randomized fashion to a standard group which were advised to take common and current guidelines. You see here plotted the 14 previous studies. On the right, you see the odds ratios and the plots for safety. And you see a signal, if it goes to the left, it favors the PCT group. And overall, there certainly does seem to be favoring the PCT group, which becomes significant in pneumonia. The first proof-of-concept study, whether this would work or not, was a study published in Lancet where, in the emergency department, low respiratory tract infections were tested. There were overall 250 patients, and overall there was a reduction from 83% of antibiotic prescription to 44% of antibiotic pres- prescription. This is an area where traditionally very low antibiotic prescription are done like in the northwestern part of Switzerland. You also see on the left of the panel that pneumonia in 90% were treated, whereas non-pneumonic infections were the one where pre-CT guidance led to a marked reduction of antibiotic prescription. The next study was then also done in primary care. Again, not so sick patients like in the CRP trial. On the lower part of the slide, you see overall antibiotic use, which was reduced by 75%. Again, in an area of general practitioners, which like in Holland, do not use a lot of antibiotics in the control group. If you see the outcome, there were identical number of sick days in both groups, despite the markedly lower use of antibiotics, but there were much less antibiotic side effects like diarrhea. Then the first multicenter trial in a substantial number of patients of 1,400 patients was done at six Swiss, cantonal and University hospitals. The four panels display the results of all patients, left top, of pneumonia patients, right top, of exacerbations of COPD, left button, and of acute bronchitis, right button. Again, you see the same picture in red, the procalcitonin group, which over the days, the time after study inclusion, had initially about a 90% prescription rate as compared to the control group but a 50% shorter duration of antibiotic courses. The mean duration of antibiotic courses was five days for hospitalized pneumonia. The exacerbation of COPD, the prescription of antibiotics was about reduced to half on admission and subsequently even further. And in acute bronchitis, virtually no antibiotics were given in the ProCT group as recommended by guidelines. Whereas in the control group, because of the severity of the disease, the physician was tended to give antibiotics. If you again look at the safety, and the study was powered for safety because there were more than 1,000 patients enrolled, you again see that the procalcitonin group did perform as well or slightly better, especially if you consider the antibiotic-associated side effects, which were reduced by one-third. The most challenging setting is intensive care unit, and uh, you will see in the later uh, talk from Dylan DeLonge about her excellent study, thus I will only briefly talk about the prorata study, the first ICU study with meaningful uh, results. You also see there that you have 23% more antibiotic-free days alive, and the outcome appeared to be similar. As I said, stay tuned for the results of the sub-study presented by the following speaker. So if we summarize all these studies, the effect of PCT guidance depends on the equity on the disease severity of the patient. If you are in primary care and you use pro-CT guidance, you're going to reduce markedly antibiotic prescription up to 75%. If you are in the setting of a high acuity, like hospitalized pneumonia or even ICU, then on admission, you're going to prescribe 90 to 100% of all patients' antibiotics, which makes also sense because of their high pretest probability. However, during the course of the disease and the immediate follow-up, you're going to reduce and stop antibiotics much faster than in the control group. And by this, you're going to reduce antibiotic use by about 25 to 50%. This is also displayed in my pre-final slide where you see again the syndrome with increasing acuity from the banal common cold, which is responsible for most antibiotic misuse in our world and thus also most antibiotic resistance, towards more severe cases like septic and septic shock where nobody would doubt to give antibiotics. And you see that antibiotic initiation in the mild cases is a target for PCT guidance, but antibiotic duration is the target for severely sick hospitalized or intensive care patients. Overall, antibiotic exposure can be used from 75 to 40% dependent on the setting, and this is absolutely safe. If you want to use this in clinical practice, there is actually an app which you can use, which is a biomarker app, where this is used and you can give in your patients demographics and then you will get the results. With this slide, I would like to conclude and be open for questions and thank you for your attention.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Bert. Excellent talk and uh, especially presenting all these clinical data. There are a few questions, and one of them uh, is a very, very common question, and um, the audience is asking if, this, uh, if I know that the CRP, for instance, is elevated in any inflammatory disease, how can this test be a marker of sepsis? Isn't this due to the fact that only septic patients were tested? So, is it a question of the design of this study which I perform? Maybe I uh, get to a wrong or a confined answer if I test it in a selected population? Are you talking of CRP
2: now or of PCT?
0: A CR- CRP is the question, but I guess it's the same for PCT. So, uh, yeah. the question is. So, um, so yeah, okay. So, so I, think, I think both markers. CRP and
2: PCT are basically inflammatory markers. However, the crux is to what extent? I think CRP is predominantly a marker of inflammation. And if you take in a hospitalized cohort patients with tumors, with infection, with strokes, you will find in all of them moderately to highly elevated CRP levels. The range of, PC, of CRP goes in our units from about 3 to about 300. Thus, there is a dynamic of 100-fold. PCT also is an inflammatory marker. So if I measure PCT in normal citizens, they are lower as compared to non-infected hospitalized patients. There's also an increase of about 10 to 100-fold of PCT levels in inflammation. However, if we have on top of the inflammation an infection defining the sepsis syndrome, the increase is further up to one million fold. So I think this dynamics in, uh, explains the improved diagnostic accuracy, which, as has been shown in randomized trials, safely can guide antibiotic therapy, which for CRP cannot be shown and I think will also not be shown. Interesting is the effect of steroids on it. Uh, As I told you in the beginning, CRP levels are attenuated by steroids markedly, and we know this in clinical medicine as well. However, in the STEP study just published in Lancet from Miriam Chris Crane, where steroids were given to pneumonia patients as compared to placebo, in the steroid group, PCT levels and PCT cores was exactly similar to non-treated patients with steroids. Thus, illustrating again that PCT has completely different dynamics, is not dependent on immunosuppressive therapy.
0: Okay, hey, thank you. Uh, second question I think it's important, uh, especially in the context of a World Congress, is uh, in some low income countries, PCT is not widely used, but CRP is. What is your idea yeah. about termination of antibiotic treatment? Is it the right point to stop antibiotics when CRP decreases to normal mm-hmm. range?
2: Yeah, I think the sensitivity of CRP is pretty good. So if the patient does clinically better, if CRP levels are going down, then I think it's safe to stop antibiotics, although this is an observational statement. No study has formally tested this hypothesis. But I think in a low-resource country, this is a reasonable way to go to avoid antibiotic overuse. However, one must always be aware steroids make falsely low P, uh, CRP levels, not PCT, and thus the patient should not have steroids if you want to follow this algorithm. Which cutoff you should use, I think, is open to debate. I think in a GP setting, 20 or 50 milligram per liter has been proposed. In a hospital setting, maybe more 100 to 50, but again, these cutoff ranges have never been formally established.
0: Okay. So thank you very much. In in view of the time, I think we go to the next presentation because we keep a little bit the issue of uh, guided therapy. And I'm glad to welcome our next speaker, which is Professor Dylan de Lange. Uh, Professor de Lange is working as intensivist in the intensive care uh, unit in Utrecht. Uh, which is a large mixed uh, unit and uh, he also focuses in in his research on uh, sepsis and he will also now present some data especially on the results of the so-called seps study which will be discussed in his presentation and um, please uh, dylan start your talk which is named can sepsis biomarkers contribute to improved patient outcome please
3: Well, uh, thank you very much. Um, um, Thank you very much, Beat, for uh, the nice cliffhanger. Um, I'm going to discuss the results of the uh, Stop Antibiotics on Procalcitonin Guidance Study, uh, which we uh, abbreviated to the SAPS trial. And this study was uh, published in Lancet Infectious Diseases earlier this year. Um, But before doing so, we have to go back to the basics. Uh, why do we need a biomarker to guide antibiotic treatment? Um, and the answer is, is really quite straightforward because we have difficulty in deciding um, whether or not a patient has got an infection. And many conditions mimic infection and that makes it really difficult for our physicians to decide whether or not a patient has got an infection. So um, In literature, we came up with the pro-inflammatory reaction of the human body, which we call the systemic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, abbreviated to SIRS. But the problem with SIRS really is that um, if you apply those SIRS criteria liberally, then almost all the patients in the ICU actually have SIRS. And if you're somewhat more restrictive, then the number drops to less than half of the ICU population. And the problem really is that sirs is the first step to the identification of sepsis, which means that many patients are suspected of having sepsis, and they eventually turn out to have uh, uh, antibiotics, while in reality they've got a different condition which not needs antibiotics, and, and that's uh, the problem really. So. There is room for a biomarker, and uh, really, we need a biomarker that can discriminate between bacterial sepsis and non-bacterial conditions, like pro-inflammatory conditions, like uh, operations, etc. And procalcitonin, which is shown here on the slide, is proposed to be such a biomarker. And procalcitonin, which is a precursor of calcitonin is produced by uh, primarily the thyroid gland and and a bit by the lungs in in rather low concentrations. However, if we stimulate the human body with bacterial products like lipopolysaccharides, um, the PCT levels rise uh, to very high concentrations. Um, And here you can see that the peak of Of the rise of procalcitonin uh, is, is initiated six hours after the uh, um, bacterial load is present and reaches a peak in let's say somewhere between ten to sixteen hours. but um, if you uh, seize the bacterial uh, um, um, insult, possibly by by treating adequately treating those uh, those patients with antibiotic, the PCT levels drop with a half-life of 22 hours, which is close to a half-life of one day. So you can actually tell that a patient is treated properly when the PCT levels are halved each day. Um, so I'm going too fast. Uh, studies have shown that PCT levels um, are correlated with severity of disease, However, there is a considerable overlap in PCT levels between SARS, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock. So an isolated PCT level uh, value is is less suitable for discrimination between bacterial infection and other non-infectious conditions. On the other hand, and that's been explained by the previous presentation as well, PCT really outperforms other um, biomarkers like CRP, interleukin-6, and lactate. So, based upon um, the ability of PCT to show an appropriate response to antibiotic treatment, we have performed a randomized controlled trial in which we hope that PCT guidance was able to reduce antibiotic treatments and antibiotic treatment duration in the Netherlands. So what we did was we measured PCT on a daily basis and when PCT levels would have dropped more than eighty percent of their peak value, we we issued a stopping advice. Or when PCT levels were below zero point five micrograms per liter, we also said please stop antibiotics. And we wanted this to be a very pragmatic and very real life trial. So Therefore, we decided to include all adult patients in whom the physician had started an antibiotic for suspected infection. And of course, some patients were already receiving antibiotic treatment on the ward before entering the ICU. And those patients who had more than 24 hours' antibiotics could not be included. And patients that only received antibiotics for, let's say, perioperative prophylaxis were excluded as well. Another group of patients that we excluded were patients with transplants, patients with AIDS, or patients with diseases that actually dictate more than three weeks of antibiotics. We, we gathered that it would be useless to advise stopping antibiotics in such patients, and physicians would not follow that advice. So those patients were excluded. And based upon these assumptions, we calculated our sample size to be somewhere around 1,326 patients. Um, But eventually, we randomized slightly more. Uh, We included 1,575 patients. But after randomization, we lost a couple of patients uh, due to protocol violations. Some of them withdrew their informed consent and others had diseases for which procalcitonin is is of no use, like uh, tuberculosis. So after that, we had uh, 706 patients in the PCT arm and 785 patients in the standard-of-care arm. And uh, it's worth mentioning that quite a lot of patients were discharged from the ICU or died before antibiotics were stopped on the ICU, so eventually we had 538 patients in the PCT arm and 457 patients in the standard of care arm, in which we, in what we call the pair protocol analysis. So here are the results, and for the sake of time, I'm skipping the baseline characteristics, but uh, there were no differences in uh, both arms it was properly randomized. Uh, the antibiotic consumption, however, was much, much lower in the PCT group than in the standard of care group. The PCT group received a median of 7.5 daily defined doses of antibiotics versus a median of 9.3 daily defined doses in the uh, standard of care group. And also the duration of the antibiotic treatment was much shorter in the PCT group the median treatment duration was five days versus a medium duration of seven days in the standard of care group. However, the 28-day mortality in the group of patients that had a shorter duration of antibiotics was lower than in the standard of care group. It turned out to be 19.6% versus 25%. And this... um, Difference remained during follow-up, so we followed all the patients uh, up to one year, and we saw that there was no rebound of mortality in the PCT group. So what I would like to discuss really with this study is that the loss of follow-up was enormous. Uh, Many patients were discharged from the ICU before a stopping rule was issued. And unfortunately, our institutional research board did not allow us to continue the study on the patient wards. Uh, we were only allowed to take blood samples for PCT measurements when there was an arterial line or a central venous line present. So we had to stop when the patient were discharged from the ICU. And the point I would like to make here is that the potential reduction of antibiotic usage and the potential reduction of antibiotic duration could have been larger if we, were, uh, if we were able to continue that study on the walls. Another very important point to make is the enormous non-adherence of physicians. In the PCT arm, 557 patients received a stopping advice. However. As you can see, only 243 uh, patients were stopped within 24 hours after issuing that stopping advice, and we thought that's, that's okay, 24 hours is good enough. However, the remainder, which is uh, 56%, stopped much later or not at all. And the point I want to make again here is that the reduction of antibiotic duration could have been much larger if physicians Would have trusted the advice more often. So the implications of this study are that antibiotics can be given much shorter uh, to many critically ill patients. And here you can see uh, that we treated our patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia for a median time of 5.5 days, whereas the control group or the standard of care group was treated for seven days, which is in general, already quite short. And the patients with a hospital-acquired pneumonia were treated for five days. Patients with a ventilator-associated pneumonia were treated for four days. Patients with intra-abdominal infections, however, were treated seven days, where in the standard of the care group, that was quite much shorter. Um, and another interesting group is the sepsis without cause. When we treated those patients for seven days, um, whereas the control group was eight days. And again, um, uh, in patients with a high CRP, procalcitonin was able to shorten the antibiotic duration by almost a day. So the second point. I would like to make a second implication really of this study is that PCT can help you guide antibiotic duration and shorten the, uh, the antibiotic duration. And the third very important point is that still many doctors do not believe that they are treating their patients too long. And now I'll come to my last slide of my presentation. Uh, but before I do, I would like to thank all the participating Dutch ICUs because without their effort, this study would not have been possible. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Um, to show us these, uh, uh, the really content of this study, which is very important, especially how this uh, was um, in the intervention arm, I think this is, was seen also in other trials that it's it's very, very difficult to to uh, get 100% compliance with these protocol more or less it's impossible um, how is it after you did your trial is there any is it now part of the practice of the daily practice uh,
3: thank you very much for the that question that's a very good question um, uh, part of the hospital's pct is still being used to uh, shorten the antibiotic duration however in uh, let's say, half of the other ICUs, um, they learned that an average antibiotic duration of five days is is enough. And many hospitals, including my own hospital, we do not treat community-acquired pneumonia, hospital-acquired pneumonia, or VIP for a longer period than than five days. So um, PCT and this trial really helped us to learn to shorten the antibiotic duration, and we can Accomplish that without PCT now.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, due to the time, we have to come to the next talk, which now is on a different field. It's not uh, on the, let's say, sophisticated biomarkers, it's uh, the good old lactate, which uh, still is very interesting in the field of um, intensive care medicine and also in sepsis therapy. And I'm glad to welcome Professor Mervin Singer, who is professor at the ICU in the University College of London, and also at the UK National Institute of Health Research, um, a senior where he's an investigator. As we know, he has um, multiple publications on sepsis, also co-chaired the new sepsis-3 definitions, and uh, he will give us a talk on the potential of lactate and sepsis management. Mervin.
4: Lovely. Thank you very much, Hervig. Hello, world. Um, Glad you can join me. Right. I'm going to talk about lactate for the next 12 minutes, Uh, the good and the bad. Um, I think there's a lot of perhaps over-marketing of lactate. So we'll go through what lactate means, uh, the evidence base for its prognostication and for its use as a clinical tool. So I'd like to pop a few bubbles, Um, I want to stress that lactate itself is actually a good guy, it's a fuel source, and so when the body needs fuel, it can call on lactate. It's mainly coming from muscle and other organs as well, but it's used by many vital organs in times of need, so the brain, the heart, gut, kidney, and so forth. The level we measure in the blood is the balance of what the body is producing versus what the body is utilizing. So therefore, even though when the body is in need, it's using more lactate, therefore the production has to greatly exceed the utilization before the level of lactate in the blood rises as a consequence, it's not a particularly early biomarker. You've got to be relatively uh, unwell before the lactate goes up. To my mind, it's a very good marker of what I call cellular stress. It's not, and in a few minutes I'll talk about the fact, it's not just about hypoperfusion and anaerobic metabolism, which is what we were brought up with in medical school, A high lactate or a poor clearance of lactate after early resuscitation can prognosticate for poor outcome, but as I'll talk about later, it's not particularly reliable, and I'll also talk about the fact that lactate measured in an intensive care patient isn't the same as that measured in the emergency room. So, oopsie daisy, sorry. So, where does lactate come from? A little bit of uh, biochemistry. So, glycolysis breaks down glucose to pyruvate. The pyruvate enters into the mitochondrion where it's metabolized to acetyl CoA. And that then feeds into the Krebs cycle, which donates electrons to the electron transport chain. And that's where over 90% of the oxygen our body uses is actually utilized. So for every mole of glucose, you generate two moles of ATP from glycolysis, two from the Krebs cycle, and about 30 from the electron transport chain. So aerobic metabolism is clearly important. If, and I'll explain in a few moments where you know, the lactate comes from. But essentially, the pyruvate that isn't taken up into the mitochondria goes into equilibrium with lactate. So if there's more glycolysis, more generation of pyruvate than the mitochondria need the lactate goes up, and you see that with excess stress. You know, for example, if the patient's pumping lots of adrenaline or we're pumping in adrenaline into them. There may be a problem downstream. Whoops, sorry, this slides keep jumping. There may be a problem downstream with a lack of oxygen. So this is the hypoperfusion situation. So the electron transport chain can't work because there's no oxygen to accept the electrons. There may be a problem directly with the electron transport chain. So, sepsis does it, drugs like metformin, cocaine, propofol can do it, carbon monoxide, and so forth. The lactate is recycled back to pyruvate and it can be recycled back to glucose. And so, if there's a problem, especially with the liver where this mainly happens, the lactate goes up because the liver's not doing its job. Also, if we're giving lots of lactate, Hartman's, renal replacement therapy, buffered solution using lactate, and the liver can't handle it. Again, the lactate can go up, and sometimes with dead tissue, you see lactate being released into the uh, circulation. So there are lots of different causes of a high lactate in a sick patient. And one I'll add on as well, beriberi. So, yes, we see it in... uh, the developed world, but the developing world, obviously, uh, thiamine deficiency is quite a common problem, and that affects, in particular, the Krebs cycle. So, there are acronyms for remembering all of these, and I, I won't go into this in any detail now. So, just to remind, lactate's a fuel source for many vital organs of the body. You get the muscle predominantly pumping out the lactate to fuel these organs in times of need. And that process is driven by catecholamines. So catecholamines stimulate glycolysis to generate the lactate, and it's the sodium pump in the muscle membrane pumps out the lactate into the circulation. We were taught, as I mentioned earlier in our uh, school days, that lactate you know, lactate's a marker of tissue hypoxia. Unfortunately, and it's been known for 20-odd years, that it's not the only cause of a high lactate. And uh, uh, there's this very nice paper from Howard James and colleagues in The Lancet in 1999 that goes into the, the detail of this. Okay, let's move on to lactate as a prognosticator. As I'll explain in a few minutes, there are many factors that affect the lactate level, so the circulation of the patient, time, and actually the location of the patient. So this is a paper that came out from the um, Surviving Sepsis Campaign group looking at the database of 28,000 patients. And as you'll see, there are four separate lines each relating to the predicted mortality and the lactate level. So if you take a lactate of four, for example, the mortality was about 25% when the blood pressure was normal and the lactate level was measured within six hours of identification of sepsis. However, the same lactate level of four The mortality now was nearly double, about 45%, if at the same time that the lactate was four, the blood pressure was low, and this was delayed, this measurement by more found discovered more than six hours after sepsis identification. So a prolonged maintained lactate in the presence of a low blood pressure is prognostically much worse than the same lactate level discovered early in a patient with a normal blood pressure. And the important point to mention is that even patients with normal levels of lactate still have a considerable mortality when they have sepsis-related organ dysfunction. When we were doing the sepsis three criteria, we looked at the same database, and essentially if the lactate was above 2 despite adequate fluid resuscitation, The mortality was 42% in patients having both a low blood pressure and a high lactate and above two. It was only 25% only. It's still high, but it was much less than the 42% if the patient had a normal blood pressure but a high lactate alone. It was 30% if the lactate was below two, but the patient was hypotensive alone and if the patient had organ dysfunction but a normal lactate and a normal blood pressure, the mortality was still 25%. So, the summary from this is that a normal lactate is still associated with a high risk of dying. So, just because the lactate is normal, if the patient is ill, you're worried about the patient, please do take them seriously. Moving on. Ooh. I think also where the patient is found, the lactate level can vary significantly in terms of the mortality prognostication. So there was a, a study um, I put here some studies in from the New England Journal, the early goal-directed therapy trials, where the lactate on average was about six and the mortality, 90-day mortality, was about 25%. On the other hand, a variety of ICU studies, the average lactate was between 2 and 3, and the mortality was double, nearly 50%. Why? Well, The ICU patients were often sedated, ventilated, fluid resuscitated, whereas the patients enrolled into the emergency room studies, the early goal-directed therapy studies, were often awake, psychologically stressed, and they weren't uh, often fully fluid resuscitated when the lactate was taken. So you have a very different situation giving a, a very different lactate level and a consequent difference in mortality. Finally, I want to talk about lactate as a management tool. Um, in the UK, NICE is, uh, um, produces guidelines, and that they do a very detailed evidence evaluation, a very detailed systematic review. So they've just come out with guidelines on sepsis, I won't go into those now, um, but I think importantly, um, I want to just look at the evidence on lactate. So they looked at nearly 3,000 studies and found 17 looking at lactate, initial lactate, for the recognition and early assessment of worsening sepsis. And as you'll see here from the summary, they weren't that polite about the studies. So the evidence from these 17 studies was of very low quality for all outcomes and they actually found the highest sensitivity was found in one study with a lactate threshold of one for all-cause mortality. And they further continued to say that the quality of evidence was generally very low. They noted there was high levels of imprecision or the lack of any measures of precision there was a very serious risk of bias, mainly because the physicians treating the patients were not blinded to the lactate status. And the guideline group agreed that they couldn't be confident in the evidence due to the poor quality. And the guideline group also considered that a lactate of two or above would pick up many patients with less serious infections. So you've got this problem of, on the one hand, a raised lactate may still be associated with less serious infections and vice versa, a low lactate may still be associated with a serious infection. So they couldn't, felt the evidence wasn't strong enough to justify determining a particular lactate threshold. And finally... Lactate clearance. A number of trials I'll quickly mention. This one from Holland, Jan Backers' group. They randomised patients to two groups: standard of care in one group, and the other group to looking at the lactate to try and reduce this by twenty percent every two hours for the first eight hours of ICU stay. And what did they find? they found, sorry, I'm just getting the clicker, that the lactate group received more fluids and dilators. However, there wasn't any significant difference in the lactate levels between the groups. However, the mortality was lower in the group given lactate, so overall it didn't quite reach statistical significance, but when they corrected for predefined risk factors, it was a statistically significant reduction. However, at no time point, either at 0 hours, 8 hours, or between 9 and 72 hours, was there any difference between the lactate guided group and the control group in terms of the blood lactate levels? So it made actually, or despite their attempts to reduce the lactate, it didn't actually reduce it. As part of their protocol, they had a a complicated protocol, but obviously it was giving fluid, blood, ionotropes, presses. But if they felt the patient had microcirculatory derangement, they could give uh, dilators. And that's where the significance mainly occurred, the difference between the groups. So fluids, there was a bit of an increase, about 500 mils more early on and about one and a half liters less later on, but they used approximately double the amount of vasodilators for twice the number of patients. But these vasodilators, nitroglycerin or catansarin, aren't standard of care. So is it potentially that treatment that gave the outcome benefit rather than targeting lactate per se? Finally, I'll mention Alan Jones's study um, from the east coast of the United States. Again, they compared titrating the patient to reduce lactate in addition to other parameters and looking for a clearance of at least 10% against central venous oxygen saturation. And they found there was no difference in treatments administered over the first 72 hours of hospitalization, and they found there was no difference in Mortality between the groups. So lactate clearance was equally good to central venous saturation. So in summary, blood lactate rises with sexes due to many, many causes, and I've gone through these, anything from the mitochondria being directly blocked, the liver not working, drugs, excess stress, as well as tissue hypoperfusion. The more stressed the patient, the higher the lactate, And the more stressed the patient, the worse the outcome. So that's why we see this correlation with worse outcomes. However, it does depend where the lactate is measured. The ICU lactate is not the same as an emergency room lactate. The illness severity, the prognostication are different. So in general, a rapidly normalizing lactate is reassuring. Oopsie daisy. However, A normal baseline lactate level, nor a rapid lactate lactate clearance with the initial treatment, the initial resuscitation, doesn't actually mean the patient is safe. So to my mind, there's no strong evidence yet that lactate-guided treatment is any better than not using lactate. Thank you very much indeed for listening.
0: Okay. Thank you very much, Mervyn, to give us this uh, very critical uh, uh, view of the lactate guidance in sepsis therapy. Uh, there are a few questions coming up um, from the audience, and one of which I think is you answered it partially at the end, is uh, if we define septic shock uh, in the new guidelines with the lactate of two, mm-hmm. and let's say we compare it with the old definition uh, of no-adrenaline dependency and our goal is to have it independent from no-adrenaline to get get a patient rid of septic shock. So is it vice versa now our goal to get the lactate below 2 because then he is no longer in septic shock?
4: Yeah. Um, One thing actually I'd, I'd like to answer that by actually just going back to say what definitions are and aren't. Definitions is a way of describing an illness. So for population studies, epidemiology, entry into trials, etc. It's not there to guide treatment. So therefore, the new guidelines state that septic shock, the lactate's got to be above 2 and the patient needs presses to keep the mean arterial pressure above 65 after adequate fluid resuscitation. But I would argue you're not going to treat the patient any differently if their lactate's one9 or 2.1. So it's there purely as a tool to everyone talks the same language. So I would argue you're treating the patient as you would any sick patient. And, yes, you can look at how the, uh, the disease evolves. So do they come off their noradrenaline? Does the lactate normalize? So it's very much more you're treating the patient. You're not treating a definition or a number. And, you know, it's, I think the, sorry, the follow-on quest, uh, point I'd like to make there is if the lactate's high, and this is the, the big challenge, you know, you've given adequate fluid, the lactate still remains high, you've tried to rule out, um, you know, s- source control, etc. what do you do then? And we clearly don't know the answer. The Dutch study suggests that perhaps vasodilators may be beneficial in this situation, but clearly it needs more study
0: and uh, another question a final one why is the lax- high lactate not the same in the ed versus the icu
1: yeah
0: i
4: think the, yeah the point i made earlier on partly the patients are generally awake by the time they arrive in the icu and so that psychological stress is a major factor and once we sedate the patient, calm them down, ventilate them, that does affect the body's response to stress because uh, we've uh, modulated it with our treatment. Secondly, these patients haven't yet been adequately fluid resuscitated. And certainly in the early goal-directed trials, I, I was part of the uh, the UK version, Promise, um, many patients given a bit of fluid basically normalize their lactate very, very quickly. The ICU patients, by and large, they're still elevated despite adequate fluid. So by the time they were enrolled into the studies, they'd already had the adequate fluid. They were already on these vasopressors. So I think we're looking at different, as you say, Herbert, different populations.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. There are a few more questions, but uh, we have to go on. And we're coming now to our final speaker, and I'm glad to welcome Professor Jean-Paul Miraf, uh, Prof. Mirat is professor of critical care medicine at the Cochin Hospital in Paris, and uh, um, he is a specialist in the field of sepsis and also in other immune response, uh, pathophysiology, and also in genetic studies. Uh, he is past president of the Scient- uh, Scientific Committee in the French Society of Critical Care and also member of many other international societies. Um, Jean-Paul, you are welcome to give your talk on how molecular diagnostics will change the management of sepsis. Please.
5: Thank you, Marvin. Dear colleagues, dear friends, uh, I guess during the last day, you have uh, appreciated how difficult it is to define sepsis and also to manage sepsis. So the question now is uh, to try to Uh, look at the new molecular diagnostic tools that just arrived uh, in in the hospital, and to try to understand how it will change the management of sepsis. Clearly, the last century, you know, has seen tremendous progresses in the knowledge of molecular science, and uh, I would say the highest point was the resolution of the human genome in uh, two or three, end of the human genome project. But that was not end of the story. That was the beginning of the story. And uh, since this date, we have seen an explosion, you know, explosion of uh, knowledge, of progresses, and also explosion of techniques. We bring at the bedside almost uh, new technology to be able to. Uh, Um, make this molecular diagnostic very easy. If we start, you know, from the genomic field, you know, genomics was uh, at the beginning the field where it was possible to detect genetic variation, we can see that from this field, we have seen transcriptomics, meaning the expression of DNA in mRNA just arrived and it was, and it is much more easier now to uh, detect RNA in the blood or any fluid uh, of your patient. But we have also the possibility of uh, detecting all kind of proteins and also uh, lipids in the blood of your patient. And that creates several slides of the patient. We cannot see the patient at only one individual like that, but we are now able to uh, appreciate the patient at the genome level, at the transcriptome level, proteome level, and that maybe will bring the biomarker of the future. Because if you look at what should, what should be a biomarker, you know, a biomarker is clearly uh, something that's... It's here to help clinicians, enhance the ability of the clinician to optimally manage the patient. And in terms of sepsis, you know, the biomarkers are here first to help to screen the patient. This one is at high risk of developing sepsis or not. For diagnosis, for sure, and we use biomarker most for that, but probably in the Currently, we should use biomarker for risk stratification to differentiate the patient. To know this subgroup of patients, it's very at high risk of dying, and maybe should be included in the study, or maybe should receive a new treatment. Monitoring what we are doing and lactate, for example, it's a good example for that, and Mervin uh, showed that very well. But also, we should have biomarker for surrogate endpoint, like for example, patients at risk of developing chronic renal failure after acute renal failure. And if you look at the different molecular diagnostics that we have at the genome, transcriptome and so on level, I will try to summarize uh, hundreds of papers uh, that have been published to to know where they may play in this biomarker uh, field. Clearly, when you look at the the genomics, the genome level, the variation of DNA, it's possible to screen the patient to know which patient is at high risk of developing severe sepsis or not. If you are infected by HIV, and that's true all around the world, if you are carrying some mutation, you will maybe not develop AIDS or very, very later on. The same, a lot of papers have shown that some genetic variations are able to say that you are at high risk of dying. And the same for surrogate endpoints, like, for example, some uh, polymorphism that's clearly associated with uh, delirium induced by sepsis. Uh, so, all these studies try to detect in the DNA what are the bad and the good markers. What is interesting is you have this marker in your blood from birth to death. So if you're able to make your map, genetic map, we will be able to follow you all uh, your life and with the same risk. So that was the base of the P of the PIROW concept that we developed a few years uh, ago and the P for predisposition, so genetic predisposition, is clearly important for susceptibility for sepsis, severity of sepsis, but also something which takes more and more place in the study, the drug response and the variability of the drug response among the patients we treat. I select only one study. It's a recent one. It's on the pneumococcal meningitis. Why? Because pneumococcus is the first bacteria responsible for meningitis. All around the world, it will be true in Europe, but also in Africa, and so on, and uh, all around the world. This study has been published, uh, you know, by uh, the group of Thierry Calandra in PNAS a few months ago, and they look at the functional polymorphism, making variation inside the gene of a cytokine, pro-inflammatory cytokine that we call MIF, for macrophage migration inhibitory factor. They look at 400 patients with pneumococcal meningitis and 300 controls that have been matched. They were able to uh, confirm, that has been shown before, that uh, some polymorphism, you know, are associated with high level of uh, MIF secretion when you transfect this uh, different DNA in cell and stimulated by uh, pneumococcal, you have clearly higher level of secretion of MIF as the uh, wild-type uh, gene. And as it's already known for years that uh, the high level of MIF is associated with mortality, including in pneumococcal meningitis, it was interesting to see if you are carrying this polymorphism, you are at high risk of dying from pneumococcal meningitis, and that they show, you know, here you have uh, the result with the two different uh, uh, variants, the CC, which is a a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism, and here it's a microsatellite. And you can see that if you're carrying one on the other variant, your risk of dying from uh, this pneumococcal uh, meningitis is, is three times higher. It's, made, it's very interesting to look at this patient at high risk of dying. Maybe it should not be in the general world, but only in ICU. But also, if you, are, if you want to treat the patient with anti MIFT, this patient should receive and not all the patients. And so that's the base of pharmacogenomics, you know, the branch of pharmacology which deals with the influence of genetic variation on drug response in patients by correlating gene expression on genetic variation. And it will uh, look at drug efficacy and toxicity. So clearly the three uh, important pharmacogenetic testing is to identify patients who should or should not uh, receive the drug because they will respond or they will be harmed by the drug. And that's also important for drug dosing and now on most of the important websites like FDA or EMEA, you have a a part for pharmacogenetics. For example, if you don't want, if you have to treat the patient with uh, septic shock by hydrocortisone, we have four or five genetic variants who can indicate which patients are the good patients to receive or not to receive this drug to be efficient to uh, decrease mortality. The next step is clearly the transcriptomic, and Tom van der Poel uh, has already uh, described this level of RNA expression, and you can see that when you look at the study, uh, transcriptomic study have shown to be important in the five objectives of a biomarker that's uh, looking at the huge number of genes, you know, gene expression, but what you can do is doing a lot of study to identify which genes are important to make small chips which will be cheaper and more easy to uh, to uh, use. That has been uh, done by uh, uh, Hector Wong, he did a lot of study in a pediatric ICU on septic shock, and he was able to create NanoString, which is a very small uh, chip on which, with only 100 subclass genes, 100 genes on the 35,000 genes that we are carrying, is able to distinguish two groups of patients with sepsis, patients with A subclass A and subclass B. And that's the example with different patients. You can easily detect the patient A and B. And at the end, you know, the patients from subclass A have clearly higher risk of dying and also to have complicated course like acute renal failure and uh, chronic renal failure than the patient from subclass B. The proteome has been known for years. You have heard about lactate, that's a proteomics label. You have heard about PCT. So I will not talk about that because now with the proteomics, we are able to detect much, much more protein than it was before. And we are also able to detect protein who are not increasing during sepsis but also decreasing during sepsis. And maybe the next proteomic biomarker will be a protein will not here anymore during sepsis and the metabolic level is much more complicated. So you can see that at the end all these molecular biomarkers give a very, very nice picture but very complicated, very difficult to know how everything interacts with each other. But bioinformatics is here and with complex software which are currently uh, available at the bedside, It is it possible from, to connect all these biomarkers and not to understand the patient as the different slides, like I said before, but to return to all aspects of the patient. And I really believe that molecular diagnostic in sepsis will be clearly one of the major factors that we, we have to
0: take into account in the next future. Thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you very much, Jean-Paul, for this uh, final talk, especially on the view to the future. And uh, we are now open for discussion. First, um, I would like you to ask you directly, and especially about the philosophy of pharmacogenetics. In oncology, definitely, no question about that. But uh, is this philosophy of pharmacogenetic testing prior to therapy not absolutely contrary to the concept of early fast therapy in septic patients? That's true if
5: you don't have the information before. And that's true also if you want to analyze everything uh, when the patient just arrived. But if you want, if you want to use anti for example, you want to detect the two mutations that have been described by Thierry Thierry Calandra, it will take you half an hour to detect them. So to use this very targeted therapy, you may, you you will have uh, tests that are, that will be available in very short period of time, and that should be companion test, you know, for, for this therapy.
0: Okay. Thank you. We are now open for all the remaining speakers, uh, except Tom van der Pol. He has to had to leave for uh, important reasons. But the other speakers are still online, and uh, we now open for discussions. And um, I would like to start with uh, uh, with Beard and Professor de Lange from uh, Netherlands uh especially on the two uh, or on the more than two pragmatic trials on PCT guided therapy the question um, arose in the, in the audience what are the reasons why uh, physicians are not compliant how much emotions is there in and how much pragmatism is really in in the in the uh, in the practice of physicians and what were the reasons why they didn't follow the uh, protocol? I think
2: because of the high morbidity and mortality and the diagnostic dilemma we have in sepsis and so many frustrated attempts, yes, there are many emotions in that topic. We also learned from the past that many proposed promising whatever were not good. Then even if PCT is a quite reliable marker. We can, all that I've worked with it, know several cases where it didn't work. And then you need to be prudent as physician not to rely on a laboratory marker. Mm. And the third thing is we have a line of university students to assistant doctors until professors and residents. And in this line, we only start to learn PCT guidance maybe as assistant doctors or residents, but not in university, because infectious disease specialists or others don't teach it, because it's a different way of looking at infectious diseases, less microbiology-orientated, rather biomarker-oriented. And there has been also a lot of misconception, mismarketing for the marker, I think, which is also responsible for emotions. So I think we should go down to a more rational approach, just use the study data and use it as they have used in studies.
0: Okay. What about you, Dylan? Any comments on that? Same situation,
3: um, Yes, I uh, have. Um, yes, we, we um, in our SAP study, we, we asked the doctors if they did not adhere to the stopping advice. Why do you not adhere to the stopping advice? And the answers were were different. Uh, some doctors just said, well the patient is still febrile so I don't dare stop antibiotics now. Uh, a lot of patient, uh, doctors actually said, well, uh, the stopping rule really uh, surprises me. normally I would treat for seven days and now after two days I getting stopping advice I, I don't trust that um, So um, there's a lot of uh, distrust into the PCT values uh, for, for various reasons. But I think the most important is that we have learned to treat our patients according to guidelines and protocols. And those guidelines often say seven to ten days. So that's what we've done. That's a trick we've learned. And all, all of a sudden, uh, a certain value tells us to stop after three, four, five days. So that's different. That's something we are not comfortable with. And many doctors just say, well, well, just continue the antibiotics. What what harm can it do? And I think that's not a proper uh, uh, consideration in reality. I think that continuing antibiotics where it's not needed can be very harmful for the patient. And I think that, uh, and I agree with that. Here is that we uh, should learn our younger doctors that seven to five, seven to ten days is no longer appropriate, and uh, we should go for the shortest. Possible time, which is close to five days in many many instances. Okay, thank you very
0: much, um, Mervin. There were some questions um, uh, regarding external factors that influence the lactate. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that this uh, that is an issue? For instance, catecholamines, yep. or also liver disease?
4: Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, Herbig. Um, yeah, so. Yes, all of these factors can put up um, lactate levels. Uh, adrenaline, epinephrine, perhaps a little bit more commonly than dibutamine or norepinephrine, but it's been described with all of them. Isoprenoline also. Um, uh a lot of, yeah, you know, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, lactate replacement fluids, especially when there's liver dysfunction, and so there's many, many, many causes. We have a patient on our ICU at the moment with a lactate admission lactate of 25, and that was from a metformin induced. Uh, mm. Hyperlactatemia, so many, many causes. And so, lactate again, it's a marker that the patient's under stress, and so you know, clearly take it seriously. But even if the lactate is in, in inverted commas the, the normal range and the patient looks ill, still treat them as a sick patient.
0: Okay, uh, what's about the power of it lactate ratio? Yeah, um, the big
4: problem, pyruvate is quite an unstable thing to measure. And so it's a challenge to try and get that measured in real time. So it's been shown you, you get essentially when there's a block, you can get the downstream block, the pyruvate goes up. Um, relative to the lactate so it's actually quite useful but unfortunately current technologies mean it's not point of care. I think potentially in the next few years there are technologies coming through that can measure pyruvate in real time at the bedside but um, currently we're not there.
0: Um, Any comments on on online techniques uh, by uh, microdialysis?
4: Yeah, well, in fact, the par of eight um, was uh, is measured by microdialysis. Again, there haven't been huge numbers of studies comparing microdialysis. And for those people that don't know microdialysis, you put a catheter, classically, uh, into a tissue bed, like subcutaneously or into a muscle or the brain, and then you infuse very slowly. a saline type solution, and then that equilibrates with metabolites in the tissue, like lactate, pyruvate, and then what the fluid coming out is. You can measure, and, uh, and obviously that that's a marker of you know tissue unhappiness. So it's more invasive, it's more expensive, but it's a nice marker of looking at the tissue under investigation.
0: Hey, here's a question from our congress chair. Conrad, do you think lactate is superior to SCVO2 to guide therapy?
4: Um, very good question, Conrad. Um, I, I think uh, I showed the paper uh, from Alan Jones, and uh, essentially they were equivalent in terms of patient outcomes. Um, so, from that single study, all we can conclude is they're equivalent. So, again, it depends on availability. So, if you're a believer and you have the ability to measure, put central lines in, measure central venous oxygen, um, that's fine if you have the ability to measure lactate. Um, you've got a point-of-care device or a lab that can give you a, a quick answer. So it, I, I would argue probably, again, from the limited literature, they're, they're equivalent Certainly from my perspective, the patients with a low SCVO2 are the ones that worry me in terms of, am I not perfusing them properly? So is it a poor cardiac output, a low oxygen? The patients with a very high SCVO2, that's usually related to a a cellular dysfunction, and it means that the prognosis is poor, uh, but unfortunately we haven't got any really good treatments at the moment to really deal with that.
0: Okay, so um, back to the PCT for uh, Dylan and Baird. Um, are there any data now on the long term, especially what's the cost effectiveness? if you use PCT, if you take uh, the whole uh, considering all the costs, including antibiotics, <coughs> is it really a cost factor or is it more about, is it the opposite? But it
2: depends very much of the costs of the test. Uh, Switzerland is a high-priced country in in, in everything, also in pro-calcitonin. If uh, the manufacturer decides finally to lower the prices, uh, it will get much more cost-effective. Well, it is cost-effective now, there have been studies in the U.S. setting large ones, and uh, they were, however, not really independent from the manufacturer of the uh, product, uh, they seem to be cost-effective if you if you take into account resistance costs, uh, antibiotic use costs, uh, IV line costs, uh, and side effect costs. Uh, briefly, I think uh, we should do rational medicine. If it is cost-effective, very good. Primarily, we should not kill our patients with antibiotic overuse.
3: Okay, Dylan, it's the same in the Netherlands? Yeah, the same in the Netherlands. Procalsternin is still uh, too expensive to be cost-effective. It pretty much depends upon what you uh, take into account in cost-effectiveness. If you just look at uh, uh, the the main driver of of costs in ICUs in the Netherlands is the, the length of stay on the ICU and that was not different between the standard of care group and the procalcitonin group in our study. So the main driver for cost-effectiveness was not present in our study, Uh, and antibiotics are pretty cheap in the Netherlands. So the cost-benefit ratio did not weigh towards PCT. But again, if if, uh, procalcitonin becomes cheaper in the near future, it might just turn out to be cost-effective. And on the other hand, we did save a lot of lives in the pro arm. So, if you weigh that, then uh, it turns out to be different, but that's not necessarily cost effectiveness. Okay,
0: so let's come to an end. Thank you very much, everybody. This, I guess, was an excellent um, line of presentation, very important issues, especially also some views into the future, what might be possible in the future, and also some view into the pragmatic approaches, what is possible in the present. And I think there were many, many uh, ideas which you raised in the the audience, and I see a lot of questions which we hope we can uh, answer in the following uh, time. So thank you very much again, all of you, and uh, we hope that uh, the excellent p- Congress will go on and there will be a short interruption until the next presentation is open at uh, 2.45 UTC. Thank you very much again, and goodbye, everybody.
4: Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made
0: this possible especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will be on a short break over Christmas and back on January 6th with a session on pathogen detection and sepsis markers too. The whole team of the Global Sepsis Alliance wishes everyone happy holidays,
3: a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year.